Good morning. Uh, so as was said just a moment ago, um, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I need to take off my glasses. I forgot to put my contacts in this morning, and anyone wearing glasses can probably relate that as you breathe, like fogs up your glasses. So I'll be able to see what's right here, but now you all are just kind of a vague blur now. Um, but we're, we're in Ephesians 4, and like what Jason said, this is a theme that we've been following throughout the year. Um, and I'll just tell you um, for next year, um, what I'm planning on doing is going through Ephesians 5 and potentially through a little bit of Ephesians 6 next year um, and dealing with uh, the next series of instructions with imitating, uh, imitating God. But in Ephesians 4, he starts this context of applications by commending to us the mercy of God and urging us on the basis of God's mercy, his work, the things that God has done to give us a new place in Christ, new, uh, a new understanding of what life is for, renewed hope. And he commends those things to us to help us to understand our calling and how important it is that we strive to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And in the world, the idea of a calling is something that a person discovers or they figure out on their own, whereas in the Bible, a calling doesn't work that way. Uh, the calling that we have in Christ is something that God has actually already defined for us. And so God's calling is for those who understand what he's done and desire to submit further to what he's called us to do and to be together in his word. So we've gone through verses 1 through 24, and what we've seen is that the series of instructions begin with one another commands. Um, and where we are in verse 25 to the end of the chapter, these are still going to be one another commands, but they're going to be more individually focused than the first part of the chapter. So the beginning, and we'll be focusing on speak truth and put away anger as the two applications this morning. But I just want to remind of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, just kind of the, the anthem for the series this year where Paul implores us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, with humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in a way that binds us, first of all, more closely together in unity in Christ. And so we've been focusing this year so far on commands that emphasize the call of unity and what we're going to see is as we strive to submit to the individual commands that we have at the end of the chapter, that's only going to increase our capacity for unity as well. So verse 20 through 24, um, I just want to remind, uh, in, in context, the idea of laying aside falsehood is related to a new identity that we have in Christ. So in verse 24, let's see if I can manage to not blur my glasses too badly here. In verse 20 through 24, remember in verse 20, he's reviewing the condition that those in the world are in, that they've been pursuing futility and vanity, having given themselves to deceitful desires that have hardened their heart and calloused their conscience. And he mentions that this is not the way that you learned Christ. And he says in verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, 
and put on the new self, uh, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in true, in righteousness and holiness and the truth. Your translation may say in true righteousness and holiness. So we lay aside falsehood for one because our identity that we've been given in Christ is rooted in truth. You think about in the world how important identity is to people in the world. Um, sometimes people have a false sense of identity or a self-created sense of, sense of identity. And oftentimes they feel very convicted about acting outside of that defined identity. And that's really the beginning of this context, that it should convict us when we act outside of this defined identity. That we no longer define our identity on our own. That our association with Christ really defines everything about who we are. And our, our desire is to ensure that we are always acting, living, and thinking within a way that is confined within that sense of identity that God has given us. So in verse 25, with renovating and removing falsehood, there's a quotation in verse 25 that I think heightens the initial command we're given by illustrating it. Um, I can't really see, but I'm imagining that some, I was going to ask for a raise of hands, but I probably wouldn't be able to see very well if you did. Um, but I imagine somebody is using the New King James Version. The New King James has quotations for speak truth each one of you with his neighbor in verse 25. The New American Standard will put that phrase all in capitalization. Every letter is capitalized because it's a quotation taken from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. And I want you to turn in your Bibles there uh, very quickly here. Um, because the context of Zechariah chapter 8 really illustrates this point in a lot of incredible ways. We've recently been studying through Zechariah and finished that series. And remember what was going on in the context of Zechariah's time frame. You have people who are being called out of the world from a history of disobedience and falsehood and deception and they were now living within Jerusalem and trying to learn how to live in the culture of God in a new way and how to adapt themselves to living again within the boundaries of their identity in God. So Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 says, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. And that's where the quotation in Ephesians chapter 4 comes from. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates and let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another or against another. And do not love perjury or false oaths for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. So if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, um, I think this illustrates that in Ephesians 4, we're not just being given what to do and what not to do, but we're being told how to adapt ourselves within this identity we've been given in Christ, the culture that's consistent with Christ. Look at the beginning of the chapter. This gives context for what Zechariah told them, what uh, gives context for the instruction they were told in verses 16 and 17. So the beginning of chapter 8. Then the word of the Lord of hosts, then the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. So what was Jerusalem to be called? It was the city of truth. 
Truth was to define citizenship in Zion. Truth did not define their citizenship from Babylon or wherever else they came from. Truth did not define who they were before. And in the end of chapter 7, he reminds them that when they were living in Jerusalem in the past, before Babylon came and destroyed the city, that they were given to falsehood and futility. And he was urging them to repent and press on to the truth because truth characterizes, it defines the city where God dwells. Now, why is this illustration so important? Because that illustrates our story. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. What the Jewish people in Zechariah's time frame experienced is really just a historical illustration of spiritual realities of our story with God in Christ. So just like they came out of futility, out of kingdoms of darkness and falsehood, God also has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and out of lives of futility. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then further in this chapter, verse 12 through 13, again, remember, in Zechariah's time, they were a people who were taken out of the world and into a city that was meant to be characterized by a culture of truth. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, are formerly a, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Further in the chapter, verses 19 through 22, he goes on to say, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you remember in Zechariah 8, God said, I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. I'm going to dwell in the city, and this is going to be a city characterized by truth. It will even be called City of Truth. But Ephesians tells us is the mystery is we are the fulfillment of those illustrations that we are to be a people who characterize fellowship with God and fellowship with the truth truth defines God's people and we can't expect that the world we've come out of or the world that we're living in the midst of is characterized by truth at all and that's the point of the context in verses 17 through 24 that all of us have come from lives given to futility Lives that were being filled with the lusts of deceit, but we did not learn Christ in this way, and truth is in Jesus. So just to define things a little more specifically, the Greek word, I don't usually put too much emphasis on, you know, looking into the Greek because I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't speak the Greek language, but I think sometimes it can be helpful to define words and terms the way that the Bible does. The Greek word for falsehood in Ephesians 4, verse 25, is pronounced pseudos. And you might immediately recognize an English word that comes from that, and that's the word pseudo. 
Now, pseudo is usually an adjective describing something. Like, for instance, pseudoscience, right? There might be some scientific evidence coming out for some conclusion, but if it's really not good science, you might say that it's just it's pseudoscience. It's presenting itself as something solid and scientific, but at its basis, it's really not really following true scientific methods. So it's something that superficially appears to be or behaves like, like one thing, but really it's something else entirely. There's another word that if you look up pseudo in an English dictionary, there's another word that is a synonym for pseudo, and that's a sham, right? It's something where it's like the rugs being pulled out from under you. You thought you were getting one thing in a deal or an exchange, but really it turns out to be something else than what it was being presented as. And nobody likes being put into a situation where they have bought into a sham or experienced that, right? And so falsehood, though, is ultimately in this idea that being a sham or it's presenting itself as one thing, but really underneath it all, it's actually another entirely. Falsehood is ultimately the denial of reality. And it is at the root of all sin. Turn to John chapter 8 very quickly. Uh, just with falsehood being a denial of reality at its core. Um, John chapter 8, verse 44 through 45. Again, falsehood being the denial of reality and the root of all sin. John chapter 8, verse 44 through 45. You are of your father the devil. And again, this is Jesus talking to unbelieving Jews who he has been trying to speak the truth to. It says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So falsehood is the denial of reality and the root of all sin. Remember he says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. How did Satan tempt Eve in the beginning? With falsehood. How did Satan tempt Cain to murder his brother? With falsehood. Satan is the father of lies, and when he speaks from his own nature, he speaks a lie because he is a liar. So falsehood associates us with the devil. And you have to think, the world tries to portray falsehood, again, as a sham, something that seems more innocent than it truly is. But if you want to know the root, the truth of a sin, just follow it to its conclusion. The people who were coming out of the world and into Jerusalem in Zechariah's time, the prophet reminds them that falsehood was the root of what led to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and all the desolations they had experienced. It was the root of falsehood and a love for falsehood that put them into that position. So he urges them, put away falsehood and speak the truth. And Ephesians presents us with that same image that falsehood at its root is what put us into the position of being dead in our trespasses and sins. And so remember last month when we were talking about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24, and the idea of futility and, and the lusts of deceit, the hardness of heart and a callous conscience. We talked about how any worldview or philosophy, if you want to see it for what it really is, you need to see the victims of that worldview and philosophy. We talked about atheism, right? That the idea of being able to just act on my instincts, 
without any consequence or a greater repercussion. That sounds good and it's very alluring when it empowers me or feels like that worldview protects me. But again, how does it feel to then be the victim of that worldview? Do you think it's appealing when somebody suffers because of somebody acting on their instincts without feeling like there will be consequence? It's the same with falsehood. Falsehood always involves a victim. And what God was trying to help the Jews understand in Zechariah's time is you have been victims of falsehood. Don't forget that falsehood comes with victims and you have experienced being that victim. And so falsehood loses its power. Now for us, what we've seen is Jesus crucified. Why was Jesus put on the cross? Ultimately, it's because of falsehood and the aggressive way that Satan tries to trap us and keep us in enslavement to falsehood. The cross is the result of the seed of falsehood. So, we each just need humility. Ephesians 4 begins with saying, with all humility, we need just genuine honesty and boldness that comes from the cross and the resurrection to be able to recognize where falsehood is present in our lives. Just like what we talked about last month with someone who has been stuck in hoarding habits and somebody has discovered it because their house is in shambles or their health is put at risk. They come into their home and it's just filled with garbage up to the ceiling and their, their safety is put at risk and they need people to come in and, and take all of the garbage out of their home. That person is just going to need those who love them and those who are looking out for their best interest to help them to get rid of things that they have built an attachment to in the wrong way. They need someone's help to recognize falsehood in their life. And Jesus as well, when we are applying the commands that we're going to be seeing throughout the rest of this chapter, it exposes falsehood and helps us to detach ourselves from things that associate us with the world and with our lives of futility. And we need to be reflective. Humility recognizes the impact I am having on my neighbors. The rest of this chapter are going to be applications that require reflective and honest humility. With speaking the truth, how do, how do lies affect those who are immediately around you? How do lies affect the people who believe them? Again, lies always involve the denial of reality and a victim. How does anger, when it's expressed, when there's an outburst of anger, how does that affect those who are your neighbor? And so we just have to be honest with where we really are and the impact that we're having on those around us. And it really calls for a humility that is able to be convicted reflective and willing to change. So with speaking the truth, each one of us. Um, with speaking the truth, genuine and diligent communication is vital to the proper working and unity of the body. Um, I know that just seems so simple, but when we read this, you may have remembered another place in Ephesians 4 where something very similar was commanded already. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where he's talking about the body working together in unity, growing in that unity and attaining to the fullness of Christ? One of the instructions in verse 14 with getting away from the deception of false teaching and being more anchored in the truth is in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So this is the second time this command, or at least a command very similar, is emphasized in a very short amount of context. 
I think that emphasizes that the body needs communication. And I think it emphasizes how easy it is for communication to be neglected. It's easy to not communicate. It's easy to be far too private or withdrawn from the body. We just have no idea what's really going on or what the spiritual needs of others really are in the body. And so we're just not able to work. And just to illustrate this, there's um, a condition called congenital uh, insensitivity. It's a condition where an individual can't feel any pain. And off the top of your head, at least this is what comes to my mind immediately, not feeling pain sounds like a superhero ability. You know, like that, how could that be a bad thing? You know, not feeling pain would be wonderful. But I remember um, some time ago, this was years ago, um, I saw an interview with somebody who had this disorder where they, they literally couldn't feel pain. And their life was pretty miserable. They were unaware if they had infections in their body. They would do things to their eyes where they would actually injure their eyes because they weren't aware of how hard they were pressing on their eyes or how much they were scratching. They would break their legs and walk on their broken legs, being unaware of the injury that they had. And if you look up people with this disorder, (laughs) there was an article that I read recently when I remembered this and was thinking about using it as an illustration where somebody who had this condition says they wished they could feel pain and they are looking for medicine to help fix their brains that they can experience pain because pain is a proper response to help the body work and function properly. Speaking the truth in love, why are we tempted to deny reality and speak falsehood? It seems like it protects us. It seems like it protects me if I don't tell you the truth. Or it might seem like I'm empowering myself to do something I want to do if I'm not honest about what I'm doing. But that ruins the proper working of the body. And the body can't experience the healing and it can't give the help that it needs to give. It can't stop the injury and address it when truth is not being spoken genuinely. So, so many bodies are like these people who can't experience pain. There's so much withdrawal. There's not enough communication. And so there are injuries, there are sins, there are struggles being experienced, and nobody is truly aware enough to step in and to give help or healing. Next thing is we need to be careful with this. Just me personally, I feel like from my experience, this may not be yours, I've oftentimes heard too much of an expectation that other people need to be more diligent about speaking the truth. And I've not heard enough biblical language that it's me, the plank is in my eye, not yours. The plank is in my eye. And so there needs to be an individual focus. Each one of you speak the truth. I have to take responsibility for myself. I need to grow in speaking the truth in love. And I need to be as merciful and patient as possible with others as I recognize that it is genuinely difficult to learn the the godly discipline of speaking truth. Maybe a way that can make it more relatably understandable about how common it is to misassociate responsibility. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about how many hypocrites there are in church, right? And oftentimes it can be this big stumbling block. I don't want to go and associate with Christians because there's too many hypocrites. 
The ironic thing is that person is not aware enough of their own hypocrisy. The reality is what Ephesians has been emphasizing and hitting us with is all of us struggle with hypocrisy. That's just the reality. Not one person is exempt from taking responsibility that I struggle with hypocrisy. That it's so easy to present one reality not as a truth while hiding underneath that I'm actually struggling struggling intensively in my relationship with God. And so we each need to individually focus on opening our hearts more to others, striving to be more honest and reflective and being extremely merciful with others, very forgiving, very patient with others as we recognize they struggle too, right? And so we're all trying to overcome falsehood. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Um, in our Zoom studies on Sundays at 2 p.m., we're studying 2 Corinthians, and I've mentioned it's my favorite book of the Bible. One of those reasons is because Paul, as an apostle, he speaks the truth to the Corinthians. He opens his heart wide to them, and he, he just gives them insight into everything that makes him who he is as a servant of Christ. In chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, I think Paul illustrates an example of what it really looks like to speak the truth, each one of us with our neighbor, as we are members of one another. Chapter 6, 11 through 13. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children open wide to us also. Really the idea is, Paul's heart had been opened by the truth, and so he was equipped to speak the truth. Paul had nothing to hide with the Corinthians. The context of this letter, Paul was being scrutinized by them in an unjust way, and he didn't fear that scrutiny. He was willing to open himself up to them as much as he needed to, to give them again a window into his heart so that they knew him and knew him completely. Now, this was awkward and embarrassing. Later in the letter, Uh, Paul mentions that he became foolish in the way that he was appealing to them and opening up to them and humbling himself before them. I think that's just a reality is speaking truth can oftentimes be awkward and embarrassing, but it builds godly trust. What Paul was doing with the Corinthians is he could see that there was an issue of trust. The Corinthians throughout this letter, as we study through this on Sundays, we're going to see that the Corinthians of all people, had every reason to trust Paul, and yet he was the person they trusted the least. So opening our hearts, it builds godly trust, even if it's awkward and embarrassing. It builds godly faith. It helps us to get to the root of where we really are. It helps us grow in godly love. It helps us extend patience, mercy, and kindness to each other. It gives others the opportunity to show us greater grace and bear our burdens. But it's also vital to be humbled by our struggles. I was talking to a brother uh, the other day, earlier this week, um, about how, and this might sound very strange, um, but it's a good thing, in a sense, that we are not exactly like God in our capability to show mercy. You know, we trust God in our prayers because we know that God's mercy is guaranteed. But when a brother or sister struggles with responding, that can also help give greater clarity for the kind of impact my struggles really have on others. 
And we just need to be open to seeing that impact. That if I do something that shocks somebody or disappoints them, it might actually be a really good thing for me to see that shock and disappointment. If somebody is willing to tell me like, hey, that what you just said really did hurt me a lot, we need to be willing to hear that out. When we do something that requires that somebody really struggle with forgiveness and we see them struggle, we just need to accept the consequences of what we've done and allow them to struggle in that way and not expect that their forgiveness just be this magical automatic thing, right? And so when we open ourselves up and when we speak the truth, people may not respond in a way that is exactly like God. That's okay. Humility accepts that and humility pursues that. But that also is true with our sins. You know, I think one of the things that encourages falsehood again is this idea of wanting to protect myself. I don't want people to see my sin. Now, in some of my struggles in the past that I've, I've mentioned, I've struggled with both of the applications. I, in my past, would lie habitually. With anger, I was somebody who is given to anger. And I tried to hide those things. And when I fell away when I was younger, later in my teenage years, I learned how to abide in contentment in hypocrisy. I tried as hard as I could to hide my struggles as much as possible from others. And at the time when I repented from sin, it was extremely difficult learning to invest trust in others because I was so accustomed to hiding my sin and trying to be as private as possible with it. And what that did is it made it much more difficult to overcome sin. And it made me have so many misunderstandings about sin. When I struggled with temptation, I presumed that temptation was the same thing as failing or the same thing as sin. And the more I opened up with others, the more I understood that to open up about temptation is not the same thing as sin. And that people in the church are there as a resource of help to be able to help equip us to be patient in overcoming our struggles and being patient in our struggles. God's people are given as a source of help and mercy and comfort when we confess sin. And we should want help to get sin out of our lives. People who speak truth are people who don't want sin to have any presence in our lives. So if you're struggling with a habitual sin in your life, if you feel like there's this sin you just can't get over, and if you're struggling with the deceit of thinking, this is just a part of who I am, I, just, I can't get past this, or I just can't help it, we've got to stop making excuses for our sin. We need to stop deceiving ourselves. We need to start speaking the truth. Speaking the truth in our hearts and then speaking the truth with one another. And I guarantee you will be surprised and encouraged by the mercy you receive from the brethren. I always, in my mind, and again, the deception of my own mind, I always build up so many barriers and thinking that people are going to be too judgmental, too, too harsh, they're not going to understand. Every time I've opened my heart to somebody in the Lord within the body, always never failed to be greatly encouraged by the patience that is extended by the person I'm talking to. All right, next point. Be angry and do not sin. So in chapter four of Ephesians, turning your Bibles back there, verse 26 and 27, there's some initial things that I think really help give context to what we're talking about with this. You'll notice the first point with verse 31 a little bit further. We are on a mission to get anger completely out of our lives. 
So if you look at chapter 4, verse 31, let some bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's not what it said. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. Colossians chapter 3 emphasizes the same point. All anger must be put away. You be really careful that in verse 26 that we're not reading this as a liberty or as permission. It's not teaching that anger is good, but that it's extremely dangerous. The presumption is that we may struggle with anger, but when you feel anger, you need to be extremely careful because you are in extremely dangerous and sensitive territory. We are on a mission to get rid of anger. Anger by nature, again, we're dealing with things that are normal in the world. The world treats falsehood like a light thing. You know, in entertainment and movies or TV shows or whatever, falsehood and lying is oftentimes like the centerpiece of a story and the source of a lot of humor. That's not the culture of Zion. Slander, hatred, malice, outbursts of wrath, these are not things that in the culture of Zion are permissive or passive things. There is a renewed and renovated way of thinking about anger. And because it's so much a part of who we have been and what the world is, we need to be really careful that we're not justifying our anger. Because anger oftentimes comes when we feel like we are in a helpless position. And just like falsehood, when we feel like we need to protect ourselves, right? But just like vengeance belongs to God, Anger belongs to God as well. There may be a time for righteous anger, but I think the time for that is much more narrow than oftentimes is talked about. Did you know that in Genesis, it never says that God was angry? And do you know when anger is first talked about in the Bible? Cain, who murdered his brother. You know the first person it says God was angry with? It was Moses in the book of Exodus. When Moses refused to do what God said. That's the first time in the Bible it says God was angry. When the world was filled with violence and the flood came upon the world, it said God was grieved in his heart. Not that he was angry, although I'm sure there was anger involved in that. So we just have to be really careful about justifying anger or being passive about anger. You know, and if we have an issue with anger, which I I very much understand, that's been a huge part of my background, is having such an issue with out-of-control anger. Just because we experience anger does not mean we get to justify it. There are some things God in his authority has authority that we don't have authority to have. Just like vengeance, we do not have authority to hold on to anger in our lives. One last thing with this. Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple. And again, it doesn't explicitly say there was anger. However, it seems obvious that this was a time when Jesus was acting on righteous indignation. One of the differences between us and Jesus is Jesus was sinless. And just like we forfeit our right to vengeance, we forfeit our right to anger when we sin. We don't have the capability to think with the kind of wisdom that anger requires to express it in a truly godly way. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but we just, we have to understand we are on a mission to get completely rid of anger and we have to be careful about justifying anger in our life. 
All anger is rooted in falsehood and sin. You remember, again, Cain is the first one the Bible says became angry. And when God is angry, he is angry in response to sin. Without sin, there is no need for anger and there is no anger. And so anger is always rooted in sin and falsehood. And we are not in the place to justify our anger and we are responsible for our anger. Just like anger can be something that we easily try to justify, Ephesians doesn't give us that liberty. Ephesians doesn't say that our circumstances excuse our anger or that people excuse our anger or that the way people treat us excuses our anger. No, Ephesians 4 teaches us that I'm responsible for my anger and that God equips me to control my anger and God expects me to control my anger. We are responsible, each one of us, for our temper and for our anger. Psalm chapter 4, Psalm 4, in verse 26, you might notice again if you have a New King James, there's quotations again in the New American Standard, be angry and yet do not sin is all capitalized. And that's because this is again a quotation. Turn back to Psalm chapter 4. I think Psalm 4 helps illustrate the applications we need to make for this point. Not only with be angry and do not sin, but also do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Verses 1 through 3, I think, illustrate every reason to become angry. The psalmist is helpless, and it's David. David is the king of Jerusalem. If there's anybody that should not be helpless, it's David. But David recognized even as a king, vengeance did not belong to him. And so in verse 1, he calls out to God to graciously respond to and protect him. In verse 2 and 3, he acknowledges that the people who are mistreating him and mistreating God's glory are people who are given to futility and falsehood. But he remembers that God has set him apart for himself. And so in verse 4 and 5, notice these scriptures. Tremble. ESV and the New King James, I believe, say, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. We'll read through verse 8. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So the first thing here is this psalmist, I think, is experiencing anger. But he gives an instruction. And sometimes in the Psalms, the, the writer will break through and give instruction to the reader because of their experience. So in verse 4 and 5, the psalmist is saying, listen, reader, be angry, feel indignation, but don't sin. How? Meditate in your heart upon your bed. Feeling anger, the first point, feeling anger, a time that is so dangerous when we can so easily give the devil an opportunity, it is actually an opportunity to grow in our faith and our love for God. That that same moment that you're so prone to give the devil an opportunity is actually God's opportunity. What God is able to do with our anger is turn it from being a temptation to sin into an opportunity for growing righteousness. And I think with meditate upon your bed, offer the sacrifice of righteousness, trust in the Lord, the psalmist is encouraging us to remember the Lord, to remember what he's done, to remember where we truly are before him, to remember his words. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I want to illustrate 
the illustration of the Psalms with an illustration in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, just to summarize, we're looking in the context of the 10,000 talent debted man. There's anger in this illustration. The master of this servant who was owed the 10,000 talents brings the servant. The servant begs him for patience. The master forgives the 10,000 talent debt, says, okay, go away. Everything's fine. In verse 25, this servant who is forgiven, uh, I'm sorry, verse um, 28, uh, the servant who is indebted and forgiven finds one of his fellow servants. He becomes angry, demands payment. The fellow slave falls down, begs him for patience. He's unwilling. And then look at verse uh, 31. His fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning, his, summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Notice this, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So when we're dealing with meditating upon your bed, not letting the sun go down on your anger and overcoming the temptation to act on anger. When he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, it may not mean that you have the ability to reconcile the situation you're angry about. But what you can reconcile is the issue of your heart. And the way that is reconciled is we remember God's anger, mercy, and patience with us. When we act out our anger, whether it's verbally or whether it's inwardly with malice and bitterness, we have forgotten and showed no concern for the mercy and patience we've received. Just think, if God was so short-tempered with others as you are, or if God was so short-tempered with you as you are with others, would you have any hope? If God was so quick to burst out in anger with your faults and your sins, would you have any hope of salvation at all? For me, the answer is no. But remembering God's anger, ironically, is a key to overcoming my own anger. Because I remember God controls his anger with me. And this servant, the idea is, you've forgotten what God has done for you, what your master has done for you. When we act on our anger, when we hold resentment in our heart, it shows we don't care about the forgiveness we've received. We don't remember what he's done for us. And so again, the opportunity to act in sin, in anger, is an opportunity to deepen our resolve and our commitment to forgive as we've been forgiven. Notice verse 35. The guarantee is if we act on our anger withholding resentment and malice in our hearts, God will absolutely do the same to us as the master did to this unrighteous and ungodly, unthankful servant in the illustration. It is very important that we overcome our anger. It is the determining aspect of our salvation in many ways. Because if I struggle with anger, it's probably that I struggle with forgiveness as well. And lastly, controlling our anger equips us to serve others. This slave was not equipped to serve his fellow slaves. He was not equipped to be able to show the same mercy he received and therefore he was not able to reflect and at any capacity what he had received himself. 
Remember James chapter 1 where it says, This you know, my beloved brethren, that each one of you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not accomplish the purpose of God. Galatians chapter 6 says, When any among you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, lest you also be tempted. Somebody given to anger who has no control over their temperament is not going to be able to serve others. They're not going to get involved in people's broken lives. They are not going to be able to make progress in the growth of the unity of the body because they're ill-equipped to deal with the heavy burdens of others' broken lives. If we control our anger, the gift is that we get to have greater unity with God, greater joy within that unity, and greater joy in our unity with others. And so the invitation is to see the glory of what God has called us into and to adapt ourselves into the culture of Zion, which is a city of truth and self-control. Let's be the people God has called us to be. Let's serve each other with gentleness. Let's be patient with each other as God has been so patient with us. And let's let, our, let, let one another into each other's hearts. If there's anything we can do for you, now is the time to bring it forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.